0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, October 26, 2021. I am John Hortz, the editor of Commentary, reminding you again to go to commentary.org slash roast21 to get your tickets today to the roast of Mayor Solovecha a Commentary's annual fundraising blowout event, November 22nd, Monday, November 22nd, in-person, live with everybody together in New York City at a nice ritzy hotel. It's an expensive ticket. It's going to punch a hole in you, but you're going to want to come because there are hundreds of us there. It's a great event. I'm not just saying that because it's our event. One of the reasons that we have this every year uh, and that we sort of stumbled into it as our as our lead fundraising event, is that people love it so much. It's a night of high good humor, uh, teasing, ribbing, high spirits, and and particularly after the last two years, you are going to want to be with us to have fun, meet commentary writers, see us in person, and watch as Mayor Soloveitchik has taken down a few pegs the way we took down Jonah Goldberg and Ben Shapiro and Dick Cheney and Joe Lieberman and the late Charles Krauthammer. He was not then the late Charles Krauthammer, I should say. It's not like we roasted him you know, post-mortem. And uh, my father, my mother, Roger Hertog, Dan Senor one of the great events, Bill Kristol, before he was Bill Kristol. And uh and one of the great events in 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 this world of intellectual nonprofit fundraising, everything. So commentary.org slash roast twenty-one. Or if you want to find out more, you can email us at roast at commentary.org Monday, November 22nd. We are three weeks and six days out. So we're excited. And you will see us in person doing some podcast-adjacent event as part of the proceedings. And I'm talking, of course, about executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Noah, you wrote a really, really great post yesterday about the billionaire's tax that is being... Ah, uh, discuss that has somehow resurfaced uh, in the process of the desperate efforts to come up with some funding mechanism for the reconciliation social spending bill that will either be three trillion or a mil trillion and a half or four and a half trillion or zero trillion or two trillion or eighty-two trillion or whatever. Uh, and so all of a sudden, uh, because uh, uh, Kirsten Cinema said she did not want to see tax rates raised and because Joe Biden said he would not raise a dollar in taxes on anyone in America making less than $400,000 a year, they got to find money from somewhere. And so Ron Wyden pulls out of the drawer and senator from Oregon, hey, I got this idea. Let's just tax the 700 richest people in the United States. Using this fancy dancy hancy pantsy method uh, of essentially taxing money uh, that uh, exists on paper but not in anybody's pocket, right? Wanna, yeah, um,
1: yeah. I mean, that's that's a very charitable way to describe a complete <laughs> revision of the American social compact. Um, so, yes, essentially, Democrats out of the blue in their effort to create some sort of funding mechanism for this bill, that they have a self-set deadline to pass by the end of the week um, or within a week, uh, this idea to tax unrealized gains, um, which would otherwise be taxed as capital gains after $250,000 that you can, you can exempt if you cash out on your investments. So billionaires, roughly 700 billionaires, people with nine figure incomes in this country, very small number of people would be subject to a tax, on the assets they own, namely stocks and even real estate, in the event that they were, in the event that they were to cash out on their investments, meaning the market value, as we assume it to be today, which is again just an assumption, would be taxed. Their liquid assets would be taxed based on the idea that they had sold those assets, which they never sold. Um, this kind of wild hairbrain scheme uh, somehow just got tremendous purchase among Democrats in the in their caucus over the course of, you know, 48 hours. And it became a talking point on the Sunday shows this weekend. And they're, they're really not sure how to sell it. Nancy Pelosi is calling it a wealth tax. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is saying it's not really a wealth tax. It's just a tax on wealth. Um, all of it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, in part because for a variety of reasons. The first of being that the revenue that this is projected to generate is paltry. It is expected to generate roughly $200 billion Over the course of 10 years, again, they're trying to put together a $1.5 trillion package. So this basically doesn't fund anything. Um, The second of all being that it would obviously have tremendous market distorting effects and a lot of downside when you poison the investment climate like this, which would dramatically reduce investment and the associated economic growth uh, with it, which would put downward pressure on revenues, which is what they need to actually fund these things. The third being that it's probably ridiculously unconstitutional. I mean, it's a, a, basically a direct tax, which is prohibited. Okay, we
0: need to, to explain that because I think this is the ultimate point. I'm well, it's the going ultimate point read... that was
1: made during Elizabeth Warren's run for for the White House. Right. We had these just, conversations, before. right?
0: Let me just read the text of the Sixteenth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which created the national income tax. "Quote: The Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes." On incomes from whatever source derived. Taxes on incomes from whatever source derived.
1: Courts this, have previously. It, the,
0: the, there is no income in an asset that is sitting unrealized. It generates no income. The income that is generated, let us say, for, by stocks that are yeah. sitting there which are dividends, right, that's taxed. This is so blatantly unconstitutional (laughs) that, I mean, you don't, this is just elementary logic. There is a reason that it says in the 16th Amendment passed in 1913 that Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes on incomes. It could have said lay and collect taxes and left it at that but even right. if look Combrite, even if they could... the, the 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 drafter of these amendments the 38 states that ratified it the however many you know congressmen and senators who voted on it literally insisted on inserting the phrase on incomes in a weird future seeing bene gesereth future seeing way that what you would do if you said congress has the power to lay and collect taxes would precisely be to give congress the power to expropriate monies that people collect and that they put in their mattress
1: okay so or brief, in a bank. briefly allow me to articulate the yes. political problems here with this thing so um, that's going to be complicated. Average voters are probably not going to be consumed with the constitutionality or the jurisprudence around the transfer of wealth, which is what is constitutional as opposed to like a transaction or an excise tax, as opposed to just taking money because it exists. Um, that's going to be hard to articulate. Democrats, however, are painting themselves into a corner now because they have to articulate a limiting principle to this, which invariably leads you to conclude that the, the limiting principle can be violated if and when it it becomes necessary and appropriate. So, you say, okay, well this is only subject to this to this tax, you know, billionaires who have all these stocks and and bonds and and real estate. It's not going to be applicable to me because we would never tax the equity in your primary residence, right? Now all of a sudden you're thinking about people taxing your equity in your primary residence. At which point the 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 sprawl, the mission creep becomes obvious. And again, Democrats are forcing themselves now to that to the idea that Class envy is going to do a lot of work here for them, but that still involves persuasion. And that's part of the problem they're experiencing. As pollsters, uh, uh, Joel uh, Benenson and Neil Newhouse uh, said in this piece in the Washington Post made a lot of waves this week, is that Democrats are spending all their time talking to people with whom, who are in their base, who already agree with them. They're talking about their priorities and no one else's. And by, you know, leaning heavily into the class warfare stuff, you're again going to appeal to progressives at the expense of everyone else and at the expense of the issues that they care about, which are increasingly exclusively inflation, consumer prices, and the state of the economy, the microeconomy, their pocketbook issues. They're just ignoring these. And that's, this is just yet another, and for, for $200 billion, they're subjecting
2: themselves to this. So can I just, what, can I say one, one point on the constitutionality issue, even if they somehow manage to argue and win the the argument that this was a constitutional tax, there's the opposite f- fact of it, right? And that's that if you are uh, going to tax appreciation, then you also have to give back that money if there's depreciation, right? Things lose value as well as gain it. So this idea that, oh, it's just, this is a win-win. We're just going to take the money on appreciation. Well, then if they lose the value of those investments, if they lose the value of that artwork or that home or whatever's being taxed, the government has to give that money back, right? That's a depreciation. So there's there's a problem there. Um, although I agree with you, John. I think it and Noah it's wildly unconstitutional. But the other point, as as Noah was saying. It's not generating revenue. It's generating massive amounts of resentment and not just among billionaires. These politicians seem to forget that American regular Americans don't look at billionaires and for the most part say they're horrible. We should punish them. Most Americans look at that success and say, that's pretty awesome. I wonder if I could do that. Or it's asked. There's an aspirational element to wealth inequality in this country that's often overlooked by those on the left. Now, not everybody shares that, obviously, but to overlook it entirely and, and assume that the American people people are going to going to think that this kind of taxation isn't going to breed resentment and isn't going to do what it did in Europe, which is drive these wealthy people out of those countries. They'll just park their wealth elsewhere. That's clearly what is the practical thing. For and, and at least Babe, Elizabeth Babe, Warren had the,
1: had the foresight to include an exit tax, a 40% exit tax on anybody who bolted for the exits.
3: Yeah, there's something. I mean, look, I, I agree that the, the, the constitutional issue sort of overshadows every other glaring problem with this, but, uh, there's another obscenity here, which is that, okay, so you're going to, you're going to tax, uh, these people, uh, based on, uh, the, the appreciation of their wealth that they haven't cashed in on what happens when they cash in on it, they get, they, they're, they're taxed all over again for the, for the, for the, for the very same earnings,
1: which is also unconstitutional or well, did they get a refund right. for well, being taxed one year based on the market value of their assets, which didn't materialize the year later when they actually did qualify for capital gains. Right.
0: Well, let's take Elon Musk as an example. Okay. Elon Musk is sitting there. He has 20 trillion shares of Tesla stock. Uh, As we know, the market has gone crazy, right? The market's at 35,000 or the Dow's at 35,000 or something like that. So Elon Musk is now the richest man in the world because his stock price is whatever it was and three years ago was half of what it is that it is now. And so he's got all this stock sitting there and it's valued on December 31st, 2021 at $100 billion or something like that. And then he has to pay tax on the unrealized gain, whatever that means. And then next year, 10 Teslas blow up or Tesla's battery is shown to be a pollutant, or whatever it is, and suddenly Tesla's market value drops by two-thirds. He was taxed for money that he didn't earn because it was sitting there a stock in 2021 with this big stock run-up. And then the next year, suddenly he's half as wealthy as he was this year but he already paid tax taxes as though he already had that money. Uh, aside from it being unfair, though, maybe you can look at this and say you can't talk about fairness with people who have money in this. You know, at these quantities, that's that's wrong. That's why we have inequality. It's a misunderstanding of fairness. Um. Uh, there is no way on earth that that this happens in a way that will actually fill the coffers of the federal government because elon musk has literally no incentive to pay a cent of any of this ever he will take them to court until he is dead and then he will not send that check to the irs that money will never be seen these 700 people will not Pay up and and here's here's a here's another sort of important point that I hadn't thought of, but that uh, I was very much inspired by a brilliant blog post by a professor of business at NYU Stern Business School, Aswath Demodaran, who explains that if you think about how this works, well, all you're doing is advancing the payment from the inheritance tax to the present. So right now, the federal government collects a lot of money in inheritance taxes off the very wealthy, okay? If they pay taxes on unrealized gains now, they're not going to be paying them. Their their issue isn't going to be paying them at the time that they die, which means that you're just... Shifting around a tax liability or a tower, excuse me, or shifting around tax receipts, it's not like the net gain to the government is going to go up one cent over twenty years. This is money that would be paid eventually when stuff is liquidated. Now you're paying it now, so you won't pay it later. So you're actually not going to gain any more money for the federal government. You're just going to be playing. An accounting game to get money, more money up front. And as Noah said, it's not that much money. It's like $20 billion a year. It's $200 billion over 10 years. It's not a huge amount of money. So it's stupid, among other things. And the other thing that Professor um, uh, Duran says is that uh, taxing people on gains as opposed to income is very unstable. One of the reasons that states can't and shouldn't rely on capital gains for the revenues that they need is that uh, gains come and go. Uh, in a down market, you know the amount of money you're going to get from a capital gains tax is much lower than it was the previous year when the market was up. Same with real estate capital gains and all of that. And he has a chart here of California's uh, California's receipts as opposed to Florida's receipts. California um, taxes all capital gains as ordinary income, whereas Florida does not do so. And Florida knows how much money it's going to get every year in taxes and therefore can budget properly. And California can't because one year it'll get a lot of money. And then in the next year, uh, it'll be, it'll be, you know, like an empty coffer and things will be terrible. And this is no way to run a railroad.
1: Right. So, so what's the point of all this? What are they trying to do <clears throat> besides get Kirsten Cinema on on board? Uh, this is apparently a fig leaf for her because from what we hear, she's willing to accept this as a as a revenue driver and and that that would be her buy in her ability her she can save face with her constituents that way how how on earth in what way is this some sort of an umbrella how does she get in cover with this nonsensical blatantly unconstitutional paltry paltry revenue generator I don't I don't understand it save for the fact that they're just it's just more flailing
0: when you poll theoretically should the rich pay more in taxes. 70 to 80% of people say yes. Right. That's, but it's that's not a the sole issue. political justification. You're asking why they issue. think. You're being salient. I'm saying, why are they doing this? It's stupid. I'm saying, they're saying, we can get away with it because people hate the, you know, think the rich should pay more in taxes. That's.
1: Yeah, I, I, I get it. And that's one of the things that Democrats tell themselves is that people are very supportive, for example, of their environmental policies it's just not a priority. It's no one's priority, save for Democrats. Especially now, by the way,
3: because um, what is the fundamental problem uh, with with jobs in the country today? Uh, people who are out of work have it good enough that they're not looking for more work. Um, these are the same people that that we're supposed to believe are incensed at the moment about about you know uh, the rich having uh, too much money, and in a few, I saw this video very recently. The point of which was, um, it was it was done by a psychologist, right? And he and he says, "Look, here's what most people think the wealthiest people in America have, percentage wise." And it was some relatively um, smaller uh, percentage of the national wealth than is actually the case. Uh, and his point was, people don't even realize how obscene it is that, the, that such a small group in this country have so much wealth. Uh, the average American's perception of this is completely distorted. And I thought, that's a good thing. That's because the average American has it good enough that they assume that their class is has a, has a more substantial percentage of the wealth in the country than they do. Well, this is, and
2: that's wonderful. And that's actually, and that the idea that their resentment is going to be focused on billionaires when in about two and a half weeks, America is going to go to the grocery store to shop for their Thanksgiving dinner. And the sticker shock of what they're going to pay for the same meal that they made year before that and year before that is going to, that's going to be on their mind a lot more than whether, you know, Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos are are getting taxed on their on their many properties. I mean, the sticker shock at the grocery store is real and climbing.
1: This is one thing that we talked about briefly with uh, the Virginia race, how the Virginia race has portended a horrifying future from Democrats' perspective in which they lose the issue of education. Shocking. Never happened. You just say, you throw. You, traditionally, you say, let's hire more teachers, throw money at schools. That's how you win the issue. And they're, they're losing the issue by tra- transforming education into a, an up or down referendum on social engineering. Now they're losing pocketbook issues. Now they're losing microeconomic issues, household issues, basic household financing issues. These are two bread and butters for my entire adult life that Democrats could rely on as issue sets that they win.
0: Can I give you another talking point to tell your friends at the dinner table who want to say what's the problem and why should you be threatened by this thing that only affects 700 billionaires? Um, Because people listen to the podcast, I think, Want our want good arguments for things that are sometimes hard to argue about. Well, Noah mentioned this about whether or not people will. I if you start saying you can tax unrealized gains, then you can start looking to the sixty-two percent of Americans who own homes who bought their homes for a hundred thousand dollars now they're worth one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and maybe. You could get some money by taxing that $50,000 gain, less depreciation or whatever. So then it's $32,000, so you could come up with a tax on that, and that can hit everybody. And you say, oh, come on, this is just about those 700 billionaires. Well, let me tell you a story about the alternative minimum tax. Some people listening to sound my voice pay the alternative minimum tax or have paid it at some point or other in the past. The alternative minimum tax began in 1969 as a result of a single article in the New York Times published in 1968 that revealed that 155 high income households in the United States had not paid any federal income taxes because there were so many deductions and shelters and things like that that they that they managed to get their tax liability number down to 0 and they didn't pay anything okay so in order to capture some revenue from these 155 high income households who had legally used the tax code in a legal way to reduce their tax burden congress created uh an add on tax, this is, I'm just quoting Wikipedia here, an add on tax on high income households equal to 10% of the sum of tax preferences in excess of $30,000 plus the taxpayer's regular tax liability. So 155 households had to pay essentially a flat tax of 10% over $30,000 in income in addition to regular taxes, okay? Just to make sure they paid some taxes. 155 households in 2017, which was 47 years later, 5.3 million people paid the alternative minimum tax. Went from a tax intended to capture revenue from 155 people to a system that taxed more than 5 million people with a flat tax that was about 20% in excess of what they would have paid as a normal taxpayer in normal income. They paid about 27% in federal taxes. Most people pay about 21%, which is about a 20 or 25% difference. That's what happens when you create a tax that only affects 700 billionaires. 40 years later, 5 million people are gonna be in that tax system with their gains, their unreal, and it'll be like, no, no, don't worry. It'll only be homes worth more than $10 million that you'll have to pay your unrealized gain on. And suddenly it'll be, it'll be homes worth 5 million and there'll be homes worth 2 million. And then individual states will do it before the federal government does it. So you'll be paying that capital gain in the state of New Jersey But you won't be paying it in Arizona or whatever. That's how the tax Overton window moves. You create something new, and it grows like Murphy's Law to fill the space. You know, and so that's one of the reasons why this is to be resisted. The question is, what is the political will to resist it? That's the question. Noah, you're saying Senator Cinema has no uh, reason. They're doing this trying to read her mind about what tax increase she will accept, right? Because she said she doesn't want an increase in rates. Which, by the way, is the only way to raise the kind of revenue that they need to offset the cost of the bill yeah, is to this, raise rates. You can't, a- you can't collect a trillion five over 10 years through these modalities. You can't. The only way to do it is to raise rates. Go back to 39.6% from 37 Go back to you know, like raise the middle class up to 29 from 28, whatever you want to call it, and then the revenue will flow it. That's the only way to do it. Problem is that they said they won't do it, and the mansion and cinema are not going to agree to it, period. And what's more, you know who else couldn't possibly vote for that? Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire, a low-tax state in which people don't like paying taxes locally or fa- and she is in. Locked in a race that she may lose next November in 2022, assuming Governor Sununu runs for the Senate. Yeah, Uh, Mansion and Cinema are carrying a lot of water for people whose heads are not above the. You know, we're all talking about Mansion and Cinema and Mansion and Cinema. If they weren't there, it's not clear to me that they're just they're providing the cover because they think it's to their benefit to people who otherwise, when the rubber met the road, would have to vote no on this package.
1: Right. Or Mark Kelly in Arizona or Mark Warner in Virginia. Um, we don't know their position. And this is also a digress, digression. It's a new wrinkle that all of a sudden cinema's opposition to this whole thing is about revenue generators. Wasn't it for the entirety of this, uh, this uh, Congress? Her problem was that it was too much spending, not the lack of revenue. And the lack of revenue here is still still persists because this is not a lot of revenue, um, it is to me baffling. And it's suggestive of what I think we all agree, which is that this there isn't a pathway to passing this social, social infrastructure reconciliation bill. A, because it doesn't exist, which is a pretty big obstacle to passing it. Uh, and B, because there just doesn't seem to be any political will among Democrats to actually suffer the consequences of passing something like this, a la twenty ten.
0: Okay, we need to move on to the politics, but first, uh, let me talk to you about our friends at Moink Box. Moink delivers grass fed and grass finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and wild caught Alaskan salmon direct to your door, helping family farms become financially independent outside of big agriculture. Their animals are raised outdoors, their fish swim wild in the ocean, and Moink meat is free of antibiotics, hormones, sugar, and all the other junk you find pre-packaged in the meat aisle. Sign up at moinkbox.com commentary to get a year of bacon for free and then pick what meats you want delivered with your first box. Change what you get each month and cancel any time. Moink was founded by an eighth-generation farmer who was featured on Shark Tank, Host Kevin O'Leary said it's the best bacon he's ever tasted. And Jamie Simonoff, creator of the Ring Video Doorbell, invested in Moink. Join the Moink movement today. Go to moinkbox.com slash commentary right now and listeners to the show will get free bacon for a year. That's one year of the best bacon you'll ever taste, but for a limited time, spelled M-O-I-N-K box.com slash commentary. That's moinkbox.com slash commentary. So here's what I read. Okay, what I read is they're on the verge. It's coming. They're scrambling to get this done before President Biden gets on a plane to go to Glasgow for the climate change. Whoop-de-doo in Glasgow, Scotland. Uh, First of all, can he get on the phone? Second of all, what? And third of all, that's really the deadline that he's going to get on a plane? What is this, a movie in which somebody has to run through the airport to stop somebody from getting on the plane to London? Otherwise, they'll never see them again or whatever?
1: Yeah, okay. but he didn't set this building, didn't this, this deadline. <laughs> um, congressional Democrats set this deadline after the failures of their efforts to pass the hard infrastructure bill. Because they did not because Joe Biden was getting on a plane to Glasgow. And that wasn't on the radar at the time. What was on the radar and remains on the radar and is a glaring red flag on the radar is November second, the off year elections, which are increasingly one looking,
0: week from today. Scary. Seven from days Democratic from today. Perspective.
1: Yeah, and, and will have far reaching psychological effects if if it, if it ends up being uh, as close as we think it is, or you know, who even knows what the effect would be if one or both Republicans were to win. It's very unlikely in New Jersey. So the two, it's, it's So the New Jersey race possible yeah. in Virginia.
0: Right. So the New Jersey race between Phil Murphy and Mr. Citarelli. I live here and I don't even, know it's ridiculous. That this guy is at 44% in the polls and neither no one, I can remember his name because he's like, The guy who is not the current Democratic governor, whose name also people have some trouble uh, remembering. Anyway, uh, and then, of course, the Yunkin-McAuliffe race in Virginia. Uh, And the funny thing is every political professional I know says this. I just don't think there are enough (laughs) Republican votes in Virginia for Yunkin to win. But... You know, he's a good candidate. He's running a good race, and I don't know. McAuliffe is acting like he's not winning. And as somebody said to me yesterday, if the public polls are showing and the the RCP and the five thirty eight averages show, basically it is a one point race with McAuliffe in the lead, which means that it's a dead heat given the margin of error. Uh, although the margin of error doesn't count in a in a poll of polls, but you know it's one one point. Again, what we know is Republicans haven't been answering the phone in the last couple of cycles and have been underestimated in terms of vote count. So do you look at that and say, Youngkin's winning? I mean, you could look at that and say Youngkin's probably winning because probably the Republican, the Democratic poll bias is a couple points and McAuliffe's only up by one, one and a half. So at the very least, it's the deadest of dead heats, or Yunkin has already had. And what is McAuliffe doing to close the gap? I'll tell you this, as Christine will tell you, and I'm going to ask her to explain. So sort of Democrats and the elite uh, people who are involved in education seem to be doing their best to get Yunkin elected. Wouldn't you say, Christine?
2: Definitely, yeah. I'm... I'm going to write something for our, for the website about this today, but there, there was an op-ed in the Washington Post which had... I want to get the title right because it was so outrageous. I actually thought it was like a so-called hoax. It said... Parents claim they have the right to shape their kids' school curriculum. They don't. And who, who, at, upon seeing this headline, immediately retweeted it with praise. But Randy Weingarten, the head of one of the nation's largest teachers unions, and the so I you know I think that that the elite there on the Democratic Party side, when it comes to technocratic education policy, they really don't see their the own their own contempt here for parents and I think that's why youngkin is getting this kind of a uh support there was a recent uh brief poll in um uh I'm gonna let me get the name of the organization right uh it's a is it Signet or something it has it's a small poll Cygnus, at, Cygnus like thank you yeah. Cygnus kind of a generic poll that was done just the other day and it it broke broke out the people they were questioning in, including K through 12 parents those parents polled at 58% for generic Republican ballot. Like just, they're just, they've had it with being told that they don't have uh, a right to speak to what is taught to their children in school. And that I, I honestly, I mean, I want to try to give the Democrats the benefit of the doubt here, but they keep making the same mistake. They keep hearing parents' concerns and instead of listening and trying to find a way, you know, through this, these controversies, They just point a finger at him and say, look at these extremists, look at these domestic terrorists, look at these people who don't understand that we should be reading about gender theory and, you know, books that include horrific rape scenes in them, you know, because we know what's best. We know what your kids are capable of and you don't. And that's not how parents feel.
1: Well, yeah, there was a very funny uh, uh, rejoinder to this piece from uh, former uh, FCC chairman, Ajit Pai, who cited the literal text of a 2013 statute in Virginia, very Virginia specific, but it's relevant to what you're saying, Christine. Quote, a parent has a fundamental right to make decisions concerning the upbringing, education and care of a parent's child. That's pretty much the the last argument against that sort of thing, at least in Virginia.
3: Uh, but what did uh, what did Barack Obama say last week? This is, phony this culture is a, war. These are phony, phony culture wars. Fake, phony culture war trumped up by by conservative news outlets. Right, reviews.
2: Right. right.
0: So I want to talk about this commercial in Virginia because I want to give people a larger cultural context. So there's this commercial in Virginia with this parent who is talking about how uh, she went to expressed concern about her kid, the reading list, the summer reading list of her kid, um, and was poo-pooed and told to shut up and go away. So this is actually a story from 2013, around about the time that this law was passed in in Virginia. And and, uh, the woman in question, Laura Murphy, actually published an op-ed in the Washington Post about what happened, because this happened uh, this this arose from a news story where she had discovered uh, her son uh, came to her something and said uh, they suggested I read this book and it's and like I'm having nightmares. It's so upsetting and horrible and nightmarish. And the book in question was Beloved by Toni Morrison. And to- Beloved by Toni Morrison is a nightmarish book. It is about a it is about a slave who kills her child uh, as, born out of born out of rape. Uh, because life is not worth living, uh, in the, in anti, in, you know, in, in the, in the antebellum world and, and, and in the world of slavery and, and, and it is, it is a very difficult book to read. I'm bringing this up in part because, you know, my, my kids go to various, very, you know, progressive woke private schools and, you know, full of all this stuff and, um, Beloved was on a reading list at school. Uh, And um, they took it off because they considered it triggering. And the whole point that Toni Morrison, the Nobel Prize winning novelist who wrote Beloved, was it's supposed to be triggering. The question is, is it supposed to be triggering to a 12 or 13 year old who doesn't have the social emotional or intellectual resources to take in what is going on and merely experiences the horror of the book and and the associations that they might have with it absent other cultural influences and it's one of the reasons that you might say well you know I I'm happy that my kid reads the diary of anne frank uh, please don't show my kid Holocaust. You know films of the liberations of the camps. I myself, at summer camp when I was eight years old, was shown on Tisha B'av, which is the day that we mourn the destruction of the temple and has more recently become a kind of Holocaust commemoration day. Uh, thoughtlessly, the camp that I went to, the Jewish summer camp I went to, showed a movie called "The Eight Hundred and One Blows," which is uh, which was a compendium of Holocaust. uh uh, films of the liberation of of the camps and i had nightmares for years i was eight years old um no joke like did it help Did was it was that something that i should have seen under no circumstances should i have been shown this without any flavor and color whereas you can read anne frank you know you could read uh, anne frank what happens in the diary of anne frank is a story that is not concluded in Anne Frank with the true, it's the knowledge that she died in the camps that is the horror that brings you the horror. Uh, the whole point is she's an ordinary, smart, you know, kind of remarkable kid going through a horrible life experience. And yet she's an ordinary kid going through ordinary life and fighting with her mother and, you know, stirrings of puberty and all of that. So that it's an ordinary life under extraordinary and cramped and horrible circumstances that comes to a tragic end that you miss because that's not how it ends since it is someone's diary.
2: But this, anyway, but... the whole
0: point is that on Twitter yesterday after this woman, uh, Murphy, made a commercial for Yunkin, I guess, or, you know, involving this whole education question. I saw all of these people going, Oh, so you're not supposed to read blo- no, you see the Republicans are going after a Nobel Prize winning novelist's great work. You know,
2: oh, look at that. They're well and so, they're ugh. they're accusing them of wanting to ban books and this is also inappropriate because in fact the original request by a lot of these parents was for alternate books like if our kids if we don't want our kids reading these books what are the alternatives that you will have on offer which they should offer but the but I think it's important to note that a lot of these discussions when parents come to schools and say we think X Y or Z is inappropriate for kindergartners or third graders or fifth graders to have to hear because that's the kind of stuff a lot of these things are moral have moral meaning to families and they want to teach kids that themselves. We saw these, we've always seen these debates with sex education, for example, at what age are certain things appropriate? But now it's about race and gender and trans ideology. And so when parents come and want to make an argument on behalf of their children with regard to what is appropriate, they're being accused by the democratic, you know, the teachers unions, the democratic elite of wanting to ban things, of wanting to censor things, of wanting to not teach parts of history. And that is not what these parents are arguing. At all. I mean, it's very clear when you look at what they're saying. They're saying, we think this is inappropriate. Not that we never want our kid to read Beloved, but maybe they read that in high school AP English when they're seniors or maybe in college, right? I mean, there are appropriate times and places for some of this material. And kindergarten and, you know, elementary school are really not appropriate places to talk about a lot of this stuff.
0: The central point here is that the educational establishment in the United States or the public educational side views parents as nuisances to be managed condescendingly or to be dismissed without prejudice or to be dismissed with prejudice not as the boss not as the taxpayer who is paying their salaries you with property taxes on their homes that will now have to face a new <laughs> unrealized gain tax if the same people get their way uh, eventually but um but as who are these people you know who they are they're your boss and they're your customer and yes you have created all these rules that make it impossible for you to be fired and you've created all these rules in which you you control the revenue stream to your employer through your own you know political power and all of that but uh, as christine said in her piece on the burgeoning parents movement which we may see come into full fruition next tuesday uh in virginia if if the results go yunkin's way parents are this is a first in sort of world history this idea somehow that there is an intermediating institution between children and parents that uh should Take control of these matters from because parents are incompetent to handle it themselves. Many parents throughout history have said, I don't know what's a good book. You know, I don't know how to do math. Teach my kids how to read. Teach my kids how to do math. I can't teach my kids how to do math. Teach them how to do math. But if a parent says, I think you're teaching my kid how to do math wrong because I actually am an engineer and this is a better way to learn how to do math. That parent, the system should be biased in favor of that parent's superior knowledge or superior understanding of their kid or something like that. This notion that parents are incompetent to supervise the education of their children is a new idea in the West. Since a, kids were once considered the property of their parents, so much so that in Massachusetts, until the early twentieth century, you were allowed to put your own child to death for being
3: disrespectful to you. It it's a new idea in reality, um, but if you recall, it is it is part of what makes uh, Plato's Republic a, a nightmare scenario, because that was that was that was one of the propositions. Uh, central, right?
2: Yeah. Well, and it, it,
0: it, yeah. Plato's Republic begins with with the with the bourgeois philistine Cephalus showing up and saying, you know, like, oh, you guys are all stupid. You know, what standing around, walking around, talking about your philosophy? What not? You're so you're so full of nonsense. And then he walks off. And then Plato and his Plato, you know, Socrates and his disciples say. We've got to save Athens from people like this. Here's how we're going to do it: no music. Parents have to be destroyed. We will. We will teach you what you're supposed to think, and you will all be automata in in service of our of our great philosophy. Right. Um.
2: I will say, I just want to say one thing historically speaking about public education in the United States, which is there was a real, uh, there was uh, there always has been an ideological ideological goal in mind for public education, some of which was actually taking, certainly in the 19th century (laughs) and early 20th century, the melting pot of race and ethnic and religious backgrounds and putting it, homogenizing it in some sense, right? The irony of a lot of the critical race theory stuff that's infected our schools now is that they're just doing the other extreme, right? So they were saying, oh, you just want to hear this feel good, you know, optimistic, white man's narrative about history, and we want to teach you all about the bad stuff. But they're doing the same, it's the same ideological goal with a different endpoint as as what was being done by a more nativist uh, focused education, which tried to make different ethnic and racial groups conform to this sort of ideal American image. So it's, I mean, historically, they're making the same error that they're, they claim they're trying to correct. Well, Noah,
0: you as uh, you know, you as a, a participant and minor participant in the cultural battles on Twitter. I don't know. I I I, I was struck because I read Twitter, but I don't go on it. I was struck by this response to Laura Murphy and her commercial and the op-ed and this whole issue with Beloved. Um, you know, from people like Jane Coaston and others, which is sort of like. Wow, they're really going for it now. They want to ban books now. Ooh, you know, Sam Stein, other people like that. And I'm like, you know, I'm I'm a little confused about this cuz aren't you also saying that Facebook should be put out of business cuz it's not banning enough content? I mean, granted, Beloved was written by a Nobel Prize winning writer, but I was I'm unaware of a limiting principle that says that, you know, Right-wing preachment should be banned and should not be exposed, and should uh, private companies should suppress it. Um, But you know, a a novel that makes a kid have nightmares for—we actually does create a circumstance in which a kid has nightmares for months on end. That's that's fine because it does what we want it to do. And isn't that the bubble? Like, isn't that like? Does Jane Coaston has no idea what these people? Why this is biting, why this issue is working, if it is, maybe we'll learn that it isn't working so well, but it appears to be working really well, which is you people think you can do anything you want to in these schools, and we're paying for them, and we don't like how you're teaching our kids, we don't like the values you're imparting to our kids, and the Democratic establishment has decided to back up the people who are imparting these values and teaching this nonsense and you're giving us no alternative but to look elsewhere than the Democratic candidate.
1: Yeah, and I'm sort of ambivalent to any, ambivalent to, mildly hostile to any movement, progressive, conservative or otherwise, that would um, establish the predicate for the suppression of literature one way or the other. I, I don't think that it's inappropriate to teach children, to traumatize children in in, in through literature. I really don't. Uh, because they will encounter that one way or the other as long as they're properly acclimated to it and taught. Part of the problem is is that teaching literature has become stigmatized. I, re- I resent the idea that I engage in cultural battles on Twitter because I'm saving it all for the publication of my book, um, which will involve a lot of cultural combat. But what Republicans are engaged here, to the extent they are engaged in anything, is mimicry of the kind of... Um, stigmatization, bodilyization, and suppression of literature engaged in by organizations like the American Library Association and the, uh, the uh, School Library Journal in particular, which have been through for years engaged in uh, efforts to convince educators to remove from the curricula um, classic literature, classic literary works because they are too traumatic for young children. Uh, for uh, All the works of Laura Ingalls Wilder, for example, To Kill a Mockingbird, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, The K, um, Of Mice and Men, and even The Odyssey, for example, all of which have come under the, the, the crosshairs of people who think that the portrayals of these characters, the, the racial gender stereotypes to which they appeal, and the moral ambiguity through which the protagonists have to navigate uh, are all just too much. For young children, uh, so to the extent that the right is mimicking anybody, at least over the last decade, it's mimicking the progressive left, which has stigmatized access to these sorts of literary works because they're afraid of the consequent the the conclusions that the reader might draw, and rather than even you know guide them towards the conclusions that they would prefer, these organizations have simply decided that it's more appropriate to to relegate them to the you know the dustbin of history and replace them with. Um, more, you know, appropriate works, up to and including the works of Shakespeare. And when you follow down that path, you're literally engaged in Baudlerization. You're borrowing from Dr. Baudler uh, to, you know, sanitize the, the literary landscape so that, you know, delicate sensibilities will not be offended in the process.
0: Although I, I think there's something slightly different going on here, because it's one thing to say you shouldn't read To Kill a Mockingbird because it's portrayal of things uh, does not comport with your, you know, your newly progressive understanding of how things should have worked in Alabama in 1925, or you shouldn't read *Huck Finn* because there is a character who is called the N-word, who is one of the, you know, noblest and greatest cat in the book. It's the entire book itself is the story, is the moral journey to understanding of a kid learning about what racism and and white supremacy is and why he wants no part of it but the fact that it even portrays it is considered you know uh unacceptable uh simply because of the use of words that's not quite what's happening here in this case which is this question of whether or not there are books that a 12 year old kid or a 13 year old kid Maybe shouldn't read yet, which is sort of what 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 Christine is saying, and that I can give you plenty of cases, including with Shakespeare. Do I think that a twelve-year-old kid should read The Merchant of Venice? No,
1: I don't. And that's and that's the big distinction between what we're but, talking about here yeah. and what we're talking about in the the case of these censorious people in literary professions is that they're talking about high school age students, college age students. They're talking about young adults who can't be confronted with these kind of uh, morally problematic situations. They're not talking about children per se, even though their definition of what constitutes a child is probably blurred to the point of non-recognition. But nevertheless, they don't make that distinction that conservative parents are making in this case, that there's simply an age threshold that needs to be applied here.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, you could assign satiricon, you know, uh, Petronius' uh, satiricon in school if you wanted to. Um, it's, it's pornographic. I mean, it's a great and enduring piece of literature, and it is a work of pornography. Like, it's okay not to assign it in high school, because it's actually kind of almost hard to take if you read it as a 50-year-old man, as I did. So, you know, I mean, these things happen, but as I say, the liberal bubble says... I'm horrified by you, you're not allowed to be horrified by me. That's that's part of it, and it becomes very hard for people like Terry McAuliffe to see past the haze that is being created by the people who actually want him to succeed. I mean, I read yesterday, or the day before, I think maybe in Mark Halpern's newsletter, that the whole reason that McAuliffe didn't see Yunkin coming to the extent that Yunkin was coming is, he assumed, as Noah even mentioned, as you mentioned, That education was his issue, like he owned education, he was the education governor, like this was going to get him elected, and the idea that the ground had shifted in the last year, year and a half, was invisible to him, because like everybody else, he was scoffing at all of this stuff and assuming that it was just Yahoo racist monsters, who were having fits about critical race theory, which is only academic, it's so academic that, you know, that the school board members in Fairfax and Loudoun counties in Virginia were imposing it on small children. Well, That's and, how and academic it was.
2: There, there's a clip going around of him saying, and, and I think he says this. This is just this – shows to people who are concerned about what's being taught in schools right now and the parents of children, uh, it shows how little he felt any of this was controversial because he does live in a bubble. And in the clip, he says, it's just as important teaching diversity, equity, inclusion, race, gender, you know, he lists the thing, he lists them all. He says, this is just as important as teaching math and reading and writing. That is an uncontroversial position for someone on the left to hold. It is a highly controversial position in the minds of a lot of this nation's parents.
3: You know, I think there's something revealing in all this, which is that, you know, I I often thought that the Republicans pounce framing of issues was intended for the consumption of potential Democratic voters or Democratic voters, um, for them to see events events unfolding uh, in a dynamic whereby Democrats were trying to govern well and then Republicans try to tear down all these good efforts by creating hysterical uh, arguments. In fact, it's been the consumption of Republicans' pounds by governing Democrats. They they have come to believe this, I think, and that has been their huge blind spot in all this. And this that this applies enormously to Biden too.
0: I mean, think about Terry McAuliffe and the journey that the Democratic Party has taken. So Terry McAuliffe is a Clinton crony creation creature, okay? Bill Clinton's entire political career was predicated on his understanding that the Democratic Party had moved too far to the left. He, in his first term as governor in Arkansas, went too far to the left, lost the governorship, came back two years later, won it again, and then started governing the state, having been a Georgetown-Yale liberal from the center-right, and came into office as a capital punishment supporting, uh, tough on crime hawk and came into office, shifted to the left, got slammed in the midterm elections in 1994 and shifted back to the right. He did what he did in Arkansas again. He said, I raised your taxes too much. He said, we're going to balance the budget. He said, I'm not doing, the era of big government is over. He said whatever it was he had to say. And here is Terry McAuliffe and faced with a political circumstance in which a genuinely good politician would understand the shifting sands under, under your feet and try to move so that, you know, you didn't end up in a sinkhole. Again, we don't really know. In the end, maybe this entire question is moot because McAuliffe will win by five points and we'll all look foolish. But if he doesn't, it will be Did he learn nothing from Bill Clinton? Do you really do you really think that these rules and laws were suspended? Do you really think now that 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 the that the nation that the country or Virginia, which is yeah, is now a blue state, but is is like let is like openly left
1: wing? But the trajectory you describe, Bill Clinton's presidential run, nineteen ninety two to nineteen ninety three, is a mere image of what Joe Biden's presidency has been so far. Running on a on a running and receiving a mandate for moderation to return to the status quo, ante pre Trump, um, almost no legislative mandate because he had so little, so few coattails, short coattails, and then proceeded to govern from the left. And Democrats are, to a man, convincing themselves that. The reason why they're in trouble right now, there's this uh, Democratic donor in in Florida who's quoted in the New York Times extensively, pounding the table over the fact that the only reason why Terry McAuliffe is flailing right now is because Democrats haven't passed a far-reaching progressive agenda in Washington. I don't think so. That doesn't sound right to me, and I can't imagine how that would uh, uh, that would remove all the obstacles that are currently before Terry McAuliffe's path to the extent that they exist because what we're talking about here is a complete misapprehension of misunderstanding of what voters want, what the electorate wants.
0: Right. But here's why I t- here's why I mentioned McAuliffe in relation to Clinton, which is to say that Clinton was an education for his party uh, and they learned it and then they quickly forgot it. Uh, they didn't want to learn what he had to teach them. And then they forgot what he had to teach them. And McAuliffe of all people, should you know who like holds the Clinton standard aloft, you would think would have inherited some of this uh if if he could have. But clearly he can't because he isn't. Because maybe you can there's only one Bill Clinton. There's only one guy who can learn that lesson a generation, particularly if it goes against, you know, every every instinct that his party has. I just think it's a, an interesting uh contrast. And um let me just uh tell you guys about ExpressVPN, and let's talk about how every time you connect uh, to an unencrypted network in cafes, hotels, airports, your online data is not secure. Any hacker on the same network can gain access to and steal your personal data. That's your passwords, your financial details, whatever is in there that is theoretically protected. It doesn't take much technical knowledge to hack someone. Just some cheap hardware is needed. A smart 12-year-old could do it. Your data is valuable. Hackers can make up to a 1000 bucks a person selling personal info on the dark web. So why use ExpressVPN to protect yourself against this? Okay? It's an encrypted tunnel. It creates a secure encrypted pathway between your device and the Internet so hackers can't steal your sensitive data. It's super secure. It'd take a hacker with a supercomputer over a billion years to get past ExpressVPN's encryption. It's easy to use. You fire up the app and click one button to get protected, and it works on all devices, phones, laptops, tablets, and more, so you can stay secure on the go. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash commentary. That's e x p dot slash commentary, and you can get an extra three months free, expressvpn.com slash Commentary. So let's do an exit question game. We never do this and we have no idea. But Democrats, in the New York Times, are scrambling to finish the reconciliation framework in time to pass the framework, which isn't a bill, but a framework. I don't even know what the hell that means, along with the infra, the billion dollar infrastructure deal.
2: If we could merge uh, the quizzical expression on Noah's face right now, we'd make a fortune. I'm just saying. So the reconciliation
0: framework and the infrastructure deal and the head of the progressive caucus, Pramila Jayapal says they must be passed together. Once again, we're back in the, it must be passed together thingy. Okay. Here's what she says. Hold on. Where is this that I can find? Uh, I can't find it. All right, fine. So, uh, they're racing to pass it. Meanwhile, Joe Manchin, this is in the House and stuff. Meanwhile, Joe Manchin says, I'm a man without a party. I for I love the Democrats and I love the Republicans, but I'm one of, you know, I'm among 48 people or and they don't like me. What can I do? Which is his way of saying, I'm not voting for it. How many times does he have to say it? So, what are the odds that this is going to happen this week? Okay? That's why I said the exit question. Okay? Or on a scale from 1 to 10, 10 being it passes easily and 0 being it will not pass by the we end haven't of haven't
1: defined week. what it is. Yeah, what is the this? Anything.
0: <laughs> okay? Just, Let's just won't... say
3: anything. Two. <laughs> Okay, you're you're a two. Anyone? <laughs> I'm a two. because because I'm, I'm uh, okay. I'll tell you this. Yeah. This is uh, I'm going to dissent here, probably. Okay, because uh, you, you're probably mostly uh, somewhere in Christine's camp. Um, I say it's above five. Okay. Only because not because I could see how it happens. Because I can't see how it happens. Only because I can't envision a second massive failure of this sort. So soon after the first one, it seems to me, sort of something has to happen
1: for for that well, unex, un, unlikely reality to happen. To, well, to there wouldn't be it. a failure, right? It just nothing would happen.
3: It, it's and if, a failure. Pelosi
1: never brought the hard infrastructure bill to the floor because right. she never had the votes. So, so we let's can't put, what it is. You know, a framework doesn't become law. There's no such thing as a framework as far as i understand it well that's and not it, entirely it legislative... right
0: because there was a the framework for the infrastructure bill was passed before they voted on the i mean the it's house procedural vote it. right i look again you know you're getting into like
1: did on a framework sure i'll give you results. that what they could get cloture on a framework <laughs> I'll, I'll give you that much okay but no between my um, i a, a First of all, we of have a the percent. House and
0: we have the Senate, right? So everything we're talking about here relates to the House. Meanwhile, it's Tuesday, okay? The election – Biden is leaving on Thursday. The election is next Tuesday. Richie Neal, who runs the House Ways and Means Committee, says Ron Wyden's billionaire's tax is idiocy. And they're going to have Correct. to do something on rates. And C- Kristen Zimmer says you can't do something on rates on all this. I would be with Abe and say there's no way – that they are gonna li- they're going to end up in a smoldering ruin yet again. And on the other hand, I think they're going to end up in a smoldering ruin. <laughs> like, I can't... And I, even more, because when I read the news stories that say that they're not, they all have this, come on, everybody. You're scrambling to finish. It's going to be, like, down to the wire. It's going to be so... And there's going to be a pass and... They, Joe Namath is going to throw it 88 yards and just going to fall into the receivers' hands in the end zone. They're going to win the game. On the basis of what? Manchin's saying no. Cinema's basically saying no. And remember, they only need three Democrats to say no in the House. All anyone's focusing on is the idea that the progressives will say no and tank the infrastructure bill. Surely there are three moderate Democrats who are going to look at a $2 trillion bill in the House and say, if I vote for this, I'm toast. I may be toast anyway. So either I'm going to vote for it and then I'm immediately going to retire. But if I really want to stick around here, I may have to vote against this and spend a year running on how I stopped my own party from being crazy.
1: But that's, No one I mean, is that's,
0: talking about that.
1: No, that's what it took in – Healthcare. Healthcare in 2009-2010 was a killer issue. They all knew it. They all knew they were walking into a buzzsaw, and it took them 16 months to convince them to walk into a buzzsaw. You're going to do that in six days? Seems unlikely.
0: All right. So Noah's at a... Noah's at a what? Abe's at a five. Join me at two. No, join me two. at two. Oh,
1: no, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, a... At a, I'm at a six. Five is two. cowardly. Okay, you're at a six. Okay. 0.25%. <laughs> oh, ooh, boy. Okay, so
0: I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with three and a half because I just – I'm still like they can't – how can they – does anybody know how to play this game like it's Casey Stengel said after he managed I, I the Mets? I reserve the right
1: to say they can pass infrastructure tomorrow if they want to. The fever can break. Somebody could could put some, you know, Premel's hand on the table, you know, casino style and say this is what you're going to do or you're going to regret the consequences. They could do that and they could have that victory tomorrow. They could have had it a month ago if they want to. If they're really that scared of the consequences of doing nothing. But I don't think progressives are that scared of the consequences of doing nothing. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has said as much. Half a loaf is worse than nothing. And they won't accept it.
0: It's like the great Jim DeMint statement in 2013, where he would rather have 30 good Republicans in the Senate than 60 rhinos. Parse that out. It's better for us to lose than to win, says AOC. (laughs) Welcome to, welcome to governance in the modern era. Anyway, so thank you guys. We'll be back tomorrow for Noah, Abe, and Christine. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.